from Silicon Valley, California. This is Fresh Dialogues. Michael Krasny is host of KQED's Forum program. He's been described as a voice of CAM amid the chatter of talk radio. Many revere Dr. Krasny as a public intellectual, gifted teacher, and Bay Area treasure. Michael, thank you for joining me today on Fresh Dialogues. Thank you. So, Michael, you grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and you wrote in your memoir, Off Mike, that you wanted to counteract the bad boy reputation you built up in high school. Can you tell me about how you got that reputation and what exactly you plan to do to counteract it? I got it by acting like a juvenile delinquent, uh, acting on my impulses, hanging out with wild guys, new guys who were criminals. Uh, I never was drawn to do things outside of the law, but I was certainly drawn to the adventure and the excitement and the intensity. And, what uh, was the worst thing you did? Can you give us an example? Oh, we don't want to go there. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you know, I was hanging out with guys who were troublemakers. Not quite as bad, let's say, as the sort of thing that's portrayed in The Sopranos, but it was a, a little bit like that world. And yet I had a firm upbringing as far as parents who were loving and who were decent and good people and who made me mindful of the fact that maybe I could make something of myself. And went off to college with a close friend who I do write about in, in, in my memoir. I call him Digger. And we both wanted to do makeovers. We wanted to make ourselves into good young men and young men who would make some kind of contribution and who would get on a trajectory where we could make something of ourselves. Right. And talking about your family, you wrote about your father, Zaz, he was called. Is that my Zaz. Zaz. You wrote about him. He was not the love and approval giving father I craved. You even blamed him for your teenage angst. Can you talk about his life and the way he treated you and how that impacted you? Well, I don't want to give my father uh, a bad press here because he was a loving man and he was a man who I revered and still hold in highest esteem. And in many ways, I think of him as, as, as my hero. But he, as a kid, I was needy and I wanted attention and I wanted uh, to know that he loved me and I wanted to have this feeling. And, and really, probably a lot of adolescents go through this kind of angst. Um, I went through some of it with my own daughter and I was a very different kind of father, much more hands-on, demonstrative and, and affection-giving and, and loving and approving father. My dad was just not that kind of a guy. He was a guy who worked hard and uh, worked in a factory. And You said he worked like a slave? He did. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, it's a common simile to use, but it's certainly apt in describing the life he lived uh, as a worker. He didn't have the benefit of a union protection. He was just a worker, a laborer in a, in a plant. Uh, he, he worked for relatives, and they were merciless. Mm -hmm. uh, and he um, nevertheless had a great deal of value in education and in learning and in the life of the mind, and he communicated that to me. And in many ways was a man of real wisdom and of uh, foresight. He certainly gave me a very uh, important foundation, and, and so did my mother. And, and I think that I got a lot from her of um, the importance of listening to people, of the importance of um, being generous where people were concerned uh, as much as one could be. And did you ever get the approval that you craved from your father? Because you've achieved a lot since those early days. 
Well, you know, that changed as the years went by. I remember he was playing at a bridge game. He said, he said, very tickled. He said, somebody said to me, you know, your son's a public figure. And I, you know, he he just was quite pleased with that. And then... How did he show his pleasure? Not in ways that were that demonstrative, because like mm-hmm. I say, it wasn't his nature to do that. But I could tell, you know, that, that he was pleased, just like when I finished a PhD. And this was his type of humor. He would say to people, well, you know, my, my son uh, is not very educated. He only has three degrees, including a doctorate, you know, this sort of thing. You know, <laughs> right. It was his sense of humor. And this was his way of showing approval. And you said in his final days, you visited him in the Menorah Park nursing home, and he had Alzheimer's. You wrote, I saw my own road diminishing as I sat with the residue of life my father once had. Can you take us back to that moment and how seeing your, your father? Well, it wasn't just one moment. There were a few moments like that. But when when you see a, a parent age and when you see the decline and the slipping off of mortality, it's impossible, I think, I mean, for any uh, sentient person not to realize that that's your own destiny. Uh, I mean, if you live that long. I mean, But there was still, you know, that awareness that came upon me that um, if I lived long, and my dad lived into his 90s, the chances were the probability was not only would I have physical decline, but I would also have mental decline. I'm realizing how important genes plays in my own life now that I'm diagnosed as a diabetic, for example. My mother was diabetic, and so were all of her sisters. And so both my parents had dementia, and um, it may be in the cards for me. Do you think you can avoid it by keeping sharp with forum, etc., and your teaching? Well, that's a, that's a good question, because I, um, I sometimes feel that way, that if I walk four miles a day, which I try to do, and if I keep my mind active. When my dad was my age, he was retired, <laughs> which is kind of a sobering thought. Um, but he kept himself busy. I think that if you do keep your mind active and if you do keep a lot of stimulation uh, intellectually and are engaged and supplement that or complement that with physical exercise, that it can be really um, life-enhancing and maybe extend your longevity and keep the dreaded dragons of dementia away. But We'll see. So it's working so far. Well, so far. I mean, I don't know. My wife sometimes say, will tell me that you act like you're demented. Or, I mean, in both senses of the word, mad or with dementia. But uh, I, I, my dad used to say, I still have most of my marbles. I think I still have most of my marbles, yeah. That's great. Now, you have a chapter in your book called Lust for Lit, meaning literature. Can you tell us about its early naissance, even before you became transfixed or transformed by Bellow's writing? Can you tell us about even earlier than that? I mean, as a child, what did you enjoy? Well, I like stories. I like storytelling and like to tell stories. I like poetry. Um, it was in my neighborhood kind of sissy to like poetry, so those were one of the kinds of things that one concealed or kept under wraps. You know, the thing about literature is it's not only loving literature as, as an art form, um, but it's also a field that appeals to someone who has a wide range of curiosities, which I do. I mean, clearly it's evidenced by the work I do on the air. I like to cover a broad range of subjects and topics. I like to learn, and the more I learn, of course, the more I realize how much I don't know. But I like to also be conversant with subjects and sort of glean knowledge of subjects that I don't know a lot about. And the thing about literature is you can study a work of literature in terms of its linguistics, a novel particularly historically, anthropologically, scientifically, and so forth. And, um, 
You know, it's the fun of doing a, a radio program like the kind of radio program I do because I can talk to people in so many different fields and learn about so many different things and follow my curiosities in all of these different ways. So literature was a good field for me, uh, being a, a man of a lot of different diverse curiosities, and so was working in public radio. And let's talk about San Francisco State and what you call your baptism of fire when you interviewed Gore Vidal. Can you talk about that and why on earth you would want to do that again? Because it <laughs> sounded like it was quite an ordeal. Well, it was a bit of an ordeal. Um, and as I say in my book, I'm not even sure why I wanted to do it again. But I I think, and, and you can probably understand this, when you can do something and you feel you can do it competently or even well, which in your case, what you're doing now, in my case, is bringing out other people and getting information from them and moving a conversation along and doing a kind of craft of interviewing, that it beckons and it beckoned me. It, it was something that I felt all along, I guess, I could probably do well. I didn't believe I could do it better than write novels because I believed that I was a novelist, but it turned out to be the case. But Vidal was... And I had every reason to believe that it would be uh, fun and interesting and enlivening. And, you know, I'd seen him on the Johnny Carson show, and he was always a caustic wit. And uh, my politics were certainly to the left at that time, and so were his. And I didn't think he was a great novelist, but I liked his essays, and I liked the work he had done in American history uh, particularly. And I thought we would be chummy. I thought we would get along just fine. And the problem was that he was intoxicated. Uh, nasty to me personally. Also <clears throat> made some rather nasty remarks about Jews, which I kind of reeled with, and I thought, how am I supposed to react to this being Jewish? And uh, Do you think he did it on purpose? I don't know. You? To this day, I don't know. I think he was a provocateur. This was off the air, by the way. Mm -hmm. Once we went on the air, he was a different person. He was not lubricated, or he didn't act lubricated like he did before. I, I described it in the book as having been with someone who seemed like he had terminal Welchmerz, you know, that world weariness. Mm. And then when the camera went on, he was suddenly like a performer, and mm. he took on a whole different persona. He lit up. I found him kind of a nasty piece of work, and when the interview was over, he just walked away, no courteous thank you or this was a pleasure or anything like that. And uh, I was still kind of churning and, and wondering, I did a professional job, I knew, but should I have called him out on the anti-Semitic remarks, and, and in retrospect, I probably should have and not done the interview, but this is the first interview I did, and I wanted to be professional about it, and I wanted to do a good job, and I was younger. <laughs> mm -hmm. And would you, would you do it differently today if you had someone in the green room who behaved like that? I think it's case by case, but um, if it were like that, yeah, I think I would. In fact, um, I might even, um, I mean, it's easy to say because it takes a certain brazenness to do this, but I might even go on the air and say, just make it public, although, you know, you open yourself up for his word against my word in a courtroom. But do you think that experience, the challenge of it, do you think that's part of what is addicting to you about interviewing people, that constant, you know, every day you have a new challenge? Do you think that's something that fires you and keeps you, you at it? Yeah, I think there's something to what you say. I think um, it's the challenge of being conversant with a different topic or knowing a lot about a person that you're interviewing. I think it's also, though, um, in addition to that challenge, there is a kind of adrenaline high that comes out of performing and out of interviewing. And I probably did get more hooked on it than 
I thought as I did it more and as I felt I wanted to master the craft of it and learn how to do it. There's a whole continuum to interviewing. The way I see it, there are those who will not bring themselves in in any way into the interview. Jim Lehrer, for example, once said to me, I had said something about, someone said I was utterly invisible in an interview. They didn't even know I was there. And he said, that's the highest form of praise. But there's also the role that I like to play sometimes as an educator, even slightly from time to time as an entertainer, and bring myself into an interview. And I'm I'm kind of in between those two. I mean, you know, you've got Jim Lehrer on the one hand, and maybe you've got Charlie Rose on the other hand, you know, who will bring himself in in a very uh, integral way, or someone like Bill Maher even to go to another extreme because he's more of a humorist probably and a satirist. So there's that challenge of weaving in one's own knowledge and on occasion even opinions, although the kind of journalism we do on NPR and KQED is more absent of certainly strong opinions, which in commercial radio, and I write about this in my book as well, is is the the bread and butter. Yes, I want to talk about commercial radio soon, but before we do that, let's talk about Beyond the Hot Tub. The title sounds a tad raunchy. Is that what you intended when you named it? Not at all. It it, it was um, sort of consonant with the times. There was a... um, This is in Marin County, which is, you know, many people feel a bastion of hedonism. And... Uh, hot tubs certainly suggest maybe, in many people's minds, sexuality and nudity. Um, they did even, to my way of thinking, probably in that era. But there was a program done on Marin County on NBC called I Want It All Now, and they presented Marin as being a place of not only hot tubs but peacock feathers and all sorts of hedonism and hedonistic pursuits. And you know, A hot tub became associated with just a place of not only so much raunchiness or sexuality, although the sexuality may have been a part of it, or sensuality, but a place of um, of leisure and people who had a kind of affluenza, I suppose, like many people in Marin County do. And I wanted to give a picture of Marin County that was different. So I did this for uh, I mean, this was my first radio gig, and I did some TV news commentary before that, but I found that I really wanted to do radio and interviews more than I wanted to do a few minutes of an editorial, even just to do reportage. Uh, it didn't interest me as much. What interested me was drawing people out and doing it spontaneously without editing. You know, the thing that I've learned, especially about public radio, since I've been a public servant in public radio, is that there are a lot of, uh, I mean, Terry Gross, for example, whose work I admire, but nevertheless, everything is edited. And there's a lot of editing that goes on. And Do you think that makes it inferior? No, but it's different. It's mm. For me, It's it would be very different to edit each program I do. Probably be better, maybe, one could argue. <laughs> Might be cleaner, certainly. Uh, get rid of some of the impurities and things that are unnecessary. But I like the idea of just doing things live without a net and without any... Is any... that because of the adrenaline rush, or do you feel it's just more spontaneous or alive? What, what is the reason mm. that you feel yours is... I think you've provided good answers, all of the above. You've been acclaimed for your interview style, and you said in your book that your mother taught you to listen to people, to be polite. Do you find your mother is still with you in the studio today? Oh, I don't know if she's in the studio. If she were in the studio, she'd be saying, you know, Michael, this has to be cleaned. (laughs) This needs to be dusted, probably. Uh, No, um, you know, there's something to be said for the idea that if you have parents that you loved and that loved and cared for you, they stay in your head. I think my work ethic comes from my father. I know it does. Uh, 
you know, I said he worked like a slave, well, so do I, but it, it's not hard labor, at least. It's labor that I like and that I enjoy. Um, but since I choose to also teach and do, and now I'm teaching a course at Stanford in addition to teaching at, at San Francisco State, and I've just written another book. I mean, this is uh, this is the life I've I've chosen, but it also has behind it a kind of dedication to being productive and 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 doing work. Uh, and certainly, that was something that my dad did his whole life. Uh, I'm much luckier, more blessed, I guess, because I like the work I do, and he did not. Um, my mother used to believe that. Uh, the idle mind was the devil's playground. And I was kidding about her saying, you know, clean up here and everything. But she would get up in the morning with a list of tasks to be done. And, you know, during my teenage years, I resented that, of course, as most teenagers do. Oh, so she had a list for you, you mean? She had a list for me, my brother, my sister. You know, these are things that have to be done. Um, I mean, it would be like she was trying to make sure that we were staying active and, and working and doing things. Uh, and I suppose there was something positive about that but at the same time um as a kid it was tough because she also wanted us to go out and find work that paid and especially in the summers it was difficult to find part-time work of any kind i mean i had paper roots and you know i, I worked as a so what they used to call a soda jerk and mm -hmm. custodial work and all those kinds of things but my mother really thought that one should be working a lot and so in that way i guess that voice is is in my head, but so is the voice that was in her that said, respect people and be kind to people. When I was a kid, for example, of about 17, and I thought, boy, maybe I should be getting some counseling help and therapy and did. Now it's de rigueur almost for teenagers, but then it was very strange. And so you odd. did back then? I did back then, for, yeah. Was it for anger management or beyond that? Well, it was, it was part of it was, uh, I like my anger at that <laughs> stage of my life, but you know, I was having some other uh, internal struggles that I was going through, and I thought I should see somebody, and I did. It helped. And uh, he wanted to talk to my dad. The psychiatrist I saw wanted to talk to my dad, and my dad went to see him, and my dad got a bill. And my dad, I remember, was, my dad was not a cheap man by any stretch, mm -hmm. but not even parsimonious, but he said, why should I pay for this? He invited me, you know, he asked me to come. And uh -huh. They had principles like that where they would uh, stand up, but they were both very nice people. And, and what did you learn about yourself through that experience? Going to therapy? Yeah. Well, it was at a crucial time because I was, I was ready to go off to college. And, uh, you know, I, I was concerned about not succeeding. I wanted, like I said, to sort of retailer myself and... Um, I um, I was anxious. I was having a lot of anx anxiousness and anxiety about that and other things. And I guess I learned uh, I learned a number of things. I learned how I uh, learned better methods of self control. Um, so it did help at least to some degree with anger management, though it would come out in other ways. Uh, when I was in the sixth grade, I um, I had a teacher. Uh, happened to be British and was from that old Swinburne school, I guess, of British school teachers who would, I was quite mischievous and I was, I was kind of a loud and, and probably an unruly kid. And he would take me in the boys' room and beat the hell out of me, you know. And I th sometimes I, I think that, I mean, that that had, I'm not, you know, none of this is poor me and, you know, victim story or anything else, but it certainly affected me. And it, uh, I mean, I kind of compartmentalized it and put it away and let it 
uh, be out of sight, but it did affect me, and the guys I hung around with affected me. You know, there was this there was this attitude that you just you had to stand up. Anybody um, <laughs> anybody insulted you or disrespected you or something, um, you had to teach them a lesson. It was like uh, an unwritten law, and it, and it was a a law that had violence attached to it. You know, that was the way one was supposed to comport oneself. Well, that's hard. And what about today? I mean, is anger still an issue for you, or have you mellowed out? Well, it's funny. Isabel Allende interviewed me on stage I at the Herbs. That. Did you see that? Well, I don't know if you remember. She said, um, I told her about an incident where somebody flipped me off after they had cut me off, and I honked my horn at them. And, and I had to really control myself because I wanted to go after them. <laughs> this is the old ethos of the boyhood street kid, you know. And... Um, I said to her, you know, I want to be like a good Buddhist or something. And she said, oh, that's so boring, you know, which is a funny line. Uh, but I would rather be not as volatile. Um, things can spark it again, you know. Um, Do you ever feel it sparked during a forum show? I've never lost control on air. This is fascinating to me because mm -hmm. I have lost control of my temper off the air. Uh, I'm sorry to say and um, yet there's something, and I'm myself on the air. I'm not, you know, somebody else. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. authentic and I'm existentially who I am, but there's something about being professional or being uh, of necessity one who follows a code on the air that has kept me from, kept my emotions in check or kept my volatility under control. And what does come close to sparking it on air? I mean, have you come close to it? Have there been people who've come on who've said things that just press your buttons? Yeah, there have been certainly moments like that. And more in commercial radio when I was in commercial. You know, you'd have these these people who would call up. Some of the callers were really quite bright. In fact, many of them were. And I used to believe and still do that if you keep the discourse up that you'll get better callers and you'll get more intelligent responses. But there were, you know, callers who... Um, really enraged me uh, because of their stupidity, obtuseness, um, dogmatism, idiocy, you know, all of those kinds of things, narrow-mindedness, bigotry, um, and like I said, a lot more in, in commercial radio, which I suppose is to be expected. And there were moments when, you know, my fuse was was burning pretty close to the quick. But so I never... you, had, you had eight years at KGO, is that right? That's right. Actually, it was... More than that, when you figure in, I was doing a, a weekly show before I did a nightly show. Right. But eight years of a nightly show, yeah. And uh, in your book, you didn't pull many punches about some of the personalities and challenges you faced in commercial mm -hmm. radio. But is there anything about commercial radio, having left it, is there anything you miss? Yeah, I do. I miss um, editorializing. I miss uh, coming in and giving strong opinions. Um, I don't do that. I do that, you know, more in uh, a less embattled way. I mean, they expected that of you in commercial radio. It wasn't my strong point, but I, from time to time I would get exercised about something and I would be able to vent. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what the medium has become, you know, a, a good deal of venting and, and entertainment largely, or demagoguery, as, as I say in the book. So I missed that side of it. I miss some of the people. There were good people that I worked with that I liked and had affection for. Uh, I certainly, um, I miss also, strangely enough as it may sound, kind of the show business side of it because it was more and is more show business, obviously, than public radio, which 
maybe takes itself sometimes too seriously and uh, I mean, it has maybe a small might of an element of show business to it, but it's largely, I mean, I interview entertainers and so you could say that that part of it falls in that category. But I find that for the most part, um, it's not. It's serious journalism and, I mean, it's public service. Uh, the mission is to inform the public and educate the public and that's fine. That's, you know, like I said, I'm an educator. But I also got a little bit of show business in me and uh, I like doing things that I don't feel comfortable with in this role as a public radio interlocutor, such as being more entertaining, being more risque maybe, maybe more raunchy to use the word you used before, you know. You yeah, could do that in, 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 well. in commercial radio and it was welcome in many respects. You know? Yes, they encouraged it. And uh, you always wanted to be a man of the written word, but now you've become a man of the spoken word. I'm really curious to know about your views on podcasting because podcasting, it makes the spoken word more easily accessible to millions. And in a way, some people say, you know, it's more lasting. What are your views? I like it. And I like the fact that we're part of it. You know, I got an email recently from somebody who said, uh, I couldn't get your podcast as well as I would have liked as I walked along the Helsinki River. I mean, it's made it really a global village. And uh, it's kind of a kick to be on iTunes and, you know, to have that whole world out there to have people be able to shift time so they don't have to listen to me from 9 to 11 or 10 to 11 in the evening. They can listen anytime as they do, you know, when they're exercising or when they're more free to listen. But when I talk about the difference between the spoken word and the written word, it's because I was drawn to what I felt was the enduring quality of the written word. And the spoken word always seemed to me to be too easy, you know. Well, fleeting as well. And fleeting and glib and, you know, all of those things, ephemeral certainly, yeah. But I um, learned to give it more value. In fact, just yesterday, I have a textbook coming out with McGraw-Hill in September that I co-authored with a, a Berkeley professor. And there are links in it to programs we've done that are podcasts uh, and some of that are just on the web. And the idea that students, particularly students who have uh, second language problems, can hear and learn that way. There's new data that shows, in fact, that there's more learning sometimes that goes on with what they hear than what they try to interpret or work with in a text. And so I found myself um, thinking, yeah, there, there, there's much to be said for learning through, I mean, it's certainly how I teach, and, and uh, I have people who speak very uh, enthusiastically about the podcast they hear and the freedom that it allows them. So all that's really m quite welcome, and yet there's, a, there's a, a sense of loss in the power of the written word. You know, young people are not as apt to read as much anymore. They, there's this whole culture of texting and instant messages and twittering and you know it's it's a whole brave new world as Huxley would call it in many ways and one that it's not so I'm not so sure is welcome to a kind of old fuddy-duddy and, and traditional textual guy like me textual not in the sense of text messages but you know reading texts and interpreting them and gaining information through texts and yet the world has become one of the internet and the podcast is part of that world. Michael Krasny, I want to thank you very much for joining me on Fresh Dialogues. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Alison, and best of luck to you. Thank you for listening to Fresh Dialogues. This is Alison Van Diggelen, with special thanks to Tom Kromkowski and Carol Pecora for technical support, and Kevin McLeod, who wrote and produced our music. Music